After experiencing the transformative power of a regular meditation practice, it's natural to feel inspired to share this gift and guide others on their own journey of discovery through meditation. Join Buddhist teacher David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell, comedian and creator of the Netflix animated series The Midnight Gospel, for a free online event on Tuesday, May 7th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. They'll discuss the profound practices of mindfulness Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash beherenow for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell. Welcome back to Mind Rolling, Raghu Marcus and David Silver. Hello. Know, hi. Hi, Dave. Hi. I don't know what episode we're at. There's too many to count already. But I think it's, it's simply one, two, three, but it could be nah, more. One, I don't two, know. Three. We'll see. Yeah. Um, so we, um, we have a wonderful guest. We've had incredible guests lately. Yeah, you know, we did that great thing with George Balaram Pitagorsky on forgiveness. I love that because that's a topic that we all need to engage with. And uh, we have Sylvia Borstein coming up, and we'll we'll talk about her in a in a minute, a little bit before we get into the interview. I want to. We haven't done our Amazon recommendations in quite some time, and I have some knockouts. Okay, that uh, I want to knock across the park here to you, Dave. Because right. I always do these things, and Dave doesn't know what's going No, coming. I like it like yeah. this. It's good. So here's one called The Dog Master. It's a book by W. Bruce Cameron. All right? And he's the guy who wrote uh, that best-selling book, A Dog's Purpose, which I, I, uh, I read. And here's a recommendation on this book. I love the book, and I could not put it down. It re- really made me think about the purpose of life, Okay. All right. Yeah. You know who said that? Temple Grandin. You know who Temple is? Oh, yeah. The authority on animal uh, uh, behavior, communications, and everything else. She is absolutely uh, staggering. I wonder if I should, uh, maybe my dogs behind here uh, would like to comment on some of this. I hope they can For start For change, they're not yeah. coming to you at all. They're quiet. Yeah, right. Let's, let's, yeah, now uh, we need them. Let's Where do let they go? sleeping dogs lie. Yes, right. <laughs> But you, you know what? I mean, someone talked to us about doing a podcast around pets. Yeah. Remember? And uh, w- which is really a great subject because there, uh, there is a way in which, I mean, pets, dogs and cats. Dave has a cat and I have a number of dogs. And uh, there is a way in which they really provide a certain, uh, not only companionship, which is the typical thing, but a certain uh, non-judgmental um, unconditionality regarding love that really is a teaching to us and can be a teaching to us. And I think it's uh, quite important. Now, I have not read this book, The Dog Master, Dave, uh, but I'm about to pick it up. And again, folks, of course, you go to our Amazon, go to Mind Rolling, go to the Amazon uh, little banner, and then. but you've got to just make that part of your bookmark in other words it's he's just sitting there like when i order stuff and i i do it through the portal and uh i just go and click on that uh um up on the uh, top part of the menu where that sits and immediately everything that i purchase goes and we get this little piece it's a tiny piece but it's enough of a piece if enough people do it so i know that we keep we haven't done this in a while, actually, is, no. is schlog around about uh, Amazon. Um, and I'll tell you something else. I buy a lot of uh, supplements. I'm a huge supplement buyer. Me too. Uh, that's part of my recommendations, as a matter of fact. Oh, that's mine. I've got this no. thing. Yeah. I got, oh. uh, there's this company, Life Extension, that I like that was recommended highly by a well-known uh, Chinese medicine doctor at West. And it's this particular thing. Everybody needs to have probiotic, right? I think probiotics are a data. I can't thing. believe you're doing this. I was going to recommend probiotics by a competing company. No. Yes. Yeah. My probiotic is better than yours. It's called Flora Assist Heart Health because it takes care of your heart, not just your belly. Okay. All right. 
So uh, it's called FLOR Assist Heart Health Probiotic, and you can go to Amazon on that. And we'll, um, I have one other thing, Dave. I so, can't believe it. Yeah, okay. I hope you don't have this as well. See, we, we, you can tell folks that we don't really get into this beforehand <laughs> and make any plan. In fact, we don't plan the pet podcast, the pet, the pedicures at all. Uh, <laughs> um, we're not high, by the way. We not at be. all. Uh, we tell you if we were. Yeah. Um, you know, I needed a wireless speaker, Dave. And it so happens that I found uh, this assortment, and I found one, a killer one. It's called Affordable Killer. It's the UE Roll. Okay, it's a Bluetooth speaker. It's water-resistant. Okay, it's now it's summer. I mean, we're getting to the end of the summer, but you can still get out there, and you just it has a bungee cord. And bang, you can play this stuff uh, swimming in the ocean. I mean, it's an amazing thing, and it's only a hundred bucks. Uh, and it's a small water-resistant Bluetooth Bluetooth speaker, and it's rich sound. I'm going to get this too, Dave. It's U E Roll. Go get it, uh, or don't. But it's a I think it's the one I have actually. You I have, have a marvelous one that I love. It's not waterproof though. Oh, yeah. This is waterproof, okay? Well, that's a bit over the top. When are you going to put it in the bath? Yes, you right. put it in the shower as you're shaving and you... Oh, right, right. Right? Okay, those. come yeah, on. There was a, a, like a Walkman that did yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. This is a, well, this is a speaker, so you have to Bluetooth it. Well, you know, you don't put, you put your iPhone on or whatever, your Android, and it's good for, you know, 30 Well, feet. they perfected the technology. When yeah. I bought that little, uh, it was actually a Discman. Oh, and uh, it lasted oh. about three showers, and then it died unceremoniously. So that they've come what a long that? way. That was in 1954? Uh, long time ago. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, okay, what's your vitamin? Okay, what is well, your probiotic? You know, I'm come not going to, I'm not, I'm, you know, you did the probiotic. I can't compete with that. But what I was going to suggest was uh, the company called Now uh, has a B12 vitamin that I take every day, and I do. And the reason I'm recommending it is because it tastes great. How many great things taste great? Like none. <laughs> So, you know, especially that are good for don't you. Don't say stewed spinach to me. It's horrible. No, these are B12 lozenges. They're very tiny. They're the size of a, you know, a baby aspirin. They sort of look like one. And they're delicious. So it's no problem getting your B12 via that. And I've been taking them for at least five, maybe eight years. I don't know, a long time. And I'm, I'm B12 up. What color so is yours? That's one recommendation. What color? <laughs> you can get it on Amazon. Hmm? What color are your little They're like pills? pink. They're, they're pink. pink. I've got pink too. I got pink B12s too. Isn't they're that great. sweet? I'm, we both have uh, pink. Or you know, they're making people quite sick now out there. But anyway, <laughs> the last and my, and my other recommendation is an album, oh. uh, also available on album on Amazon, of course, and it's called All the Road Running. All the Road Running, and it is uh, two marvelous musicians, Mark Knopfler and Emmy Lou Harris. And Knopfler oh. is is in the top. Ten of all great guitar players of all time. I, I have think. some of that. Fantastic. I love him. Yeah. And Emmy Lou is just someone Emmy that I, I, I stand in awe of. And the two of them together have created something. You know, like Robert Plant and Alison Krauss, yeah. the wonderful album. Yeah. This is like that. Of course, it's totally different because they're different musicians. But it will please you. It will please you. It does me. So uh, hey, all the road running. And by the way, have you? I, I for the first time heard Ed Sheeran uh, yeah. last night. He was at Wembley live con. This yeah. guy gets up there just with a guitar. How big is Wembley? It's a huge stadium, right? I've never 60, been there. 60,000 people, yeah. Unbelievable, this guy. Yeah, Unbelievable. I couldn't believe it. So He's Ed, a very nice person. Yeah, too. he seems so. He, he was hanging out with Elton and all that. Yeah, it was cool. He's, he's been very kind to my dear friends and shown them such respect and love that I'll never forget it. He's just a good guy. Really? Yeah. You're telling yeah, me you know loved- Ed Sheeran? I don't know, but he loves Hanson and he visits them uh-huh. all the time. Oh, really? They've opened oh, for him cool. twice now. And he played that whole album on an acoustic guitar in their dining room a few weeks ago, um, just with a guitar, and asked them, would they, would they, would, do they like it? You know? oh, he's a lovely man, oh, and he's really? been very successful. Yeah, he seems so. Fantastic. Good guy. Yeah, Good guy. amazing. Okay, onward to our podcast. Uh, in, it's not an interview, Hangout with uh, Sylvia and... Um, Sylvia Borstein uh, is actually a st- was originally a student of Jack Cornfield, so and and also Sharon Salzberg, and so she's part of our low hanging fruit family. She's a cousin of our low hanging fruit guys and girls. Yeah, um, yeah. and uh, she is also another extraordinary, practical, down to earth 
teacher and a wonderful woman, and you're just going to appreciate how she really uh, puts stuff together in terms of really making friends with the things that really put us off rather than pushing them away. And she has just a certain... Uh, way of uh, of perspective that I think is uh, a, a wonderful thing for us to um, very helpful. Yeah, I mean, really helpful words. This woman does not obfuscate uh, wisdom in a lot of a lot of jargon. She just tells it sort of like it is. Great, Obfus- great. obfuscate. Obf- How do you do that? Obfus- obfuscate. It's hard word, but I like the word because I do a lot of obfuscation myself. So I need to know the word. You obfuscator. <laughs> <laughs> All right, here it is, uh, Sylvia Borstein, and we'll uh, we'll talk after. Hey everyone, this is Mind Rolling Podcast. Raghu Marcus here with David Silver and our special guest today, Sylvia Borstein. And Sylvia. Uh, I would say to you that as a any friend of Sharon is a friend of ours, absolutely, and that's how we met Sylvia. She does a, a a lot of co-teaching with Sharon, and she's also very close to Jack Cornfield. So it's it's really um, it's part of the whole uh, in Sanskrit. It's called mishpucha, I guess, right? Uh, <laughs> welcome, Sylvia. Welcome. Yes. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm happy to be here. Do you know Sharon was my uh, my first meta teacher, so uh, mm-hmm. she occupies forever a certain place in my heart in the way that you have a root teacher of something. I'd actually met uh, mindfulness insight, vipassana meditation, uh, in 1977, and I didn't uh, work with Sharon until 1985 when she started to teach. Uh, loving-kindness meditation, mm. metta meditation. And uh, so forever she is my guru in that lineage of practice. And uh, and Jack is my very close friend and colleague at Spirit Rock Meditation Center. And Joseph Goldstein has been my longtime very uh, good friend and teacher. So I really got into this whole movement just at the right time when such extraordinary teachers had just come back from Asia and we're starting to teach here. I consider myself to be among the first uh, generation of homegrown uh, mindfulness teachers. Yeah. So we, uh, at Mind Rolling, David and I always uh, invite our guests to talk a little bit about the triggers of transformation from when one first started to realize that there was, shall we say, a deeper reality than the one that we grew up into, and what were those things for you that really uh, triggered that kind of transformation when you were you uh, a youth? I think a little bit about what triggered a realization that there's a deeper reality. I think that what was more primary in my own path and search was my uh, growing in front when I was an adolescent that... Um, there was some serious problem with this life that had to be addressed. Uh, uh, I think, I don't know that I had an earlier existential crisis than anybody else does. I think that the Buddha's story about having grown up comfortable and protected from feeling any angst about uh, the way life is, about living and dying and losing people, and then discovering it as a young adult and starting his own path is really uh, uh is really a metaphor for the way it is for many of us that at some point we realize, oh, there's something really alarming about this life situation. Sometimes that happens, I think, with young children. If a parent dies at quite a young age or a sibling or their best friend. Or, uh, in my case, I had, um, uh, uh, my mother had a, a, a heart ailment all the time that I was growing up. And she actually did live until I was 23 years old. But I had an alarm all the time that I was growing up that she might not. So I worried a lot about losing something that was dear to me. I also remember, and maybe this is, maybe this is just uh, serendipitous. It just came in my mind. Maybe this is one of those triggered moments. I had a, um, I had a young boyfriend, really young, when I was 15 years old. And he was probably 16 and uh, uh, 
very, very uh, unusually philosophical for a 16-year-old boy. And uh, uh, we used to spend time rowing. He would row me around a boat in a pond near where we lived. And he'd uh, quote Dylan Thomas, which is a very exciting thing. Be 15 years old and have somebody quoting Dylan Thomas. Mm. And I remember him uh, saying uh, the last line of uh, rage, rage about the dying of the light, the, the Dylan Thomas's poem about his father lying, dying, and uh, saying rage, rage against the dying of the light. And I remember thinking to myself at that time, I don't want to do that. You know, that, that didn't sound right to me. And I thought, I thought somewhere there was a way in which I'd probably be able to do this life and, and exit it without raging about it. And, but, and I didn't at that moment think to myself, oh, well, I have to be on a spiritual path. I just knew, I knew that life was very chancy. I thought I was more melancholy than other people. I was more melancholy than other people. What was I doing? <laughs> what was I doing in a rowboat listening to Dylan Thomas? <laughs> other other people were going to football games. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but I, you know, I married very young. I met my husband, in fact, when I was sixteen years old, and I married him when I was not quite nineteen years old, and I'm still married to him sixty years later. And uh, and we had a lot of good fortune in our in our whole life, but especially in our early life, um, we both of us gone to enough school that he could work and support us. And I had uh, four children in very in five years, six years after we were married. And uh, at some point, not so long after that, uh, I began to feel again um, a sort of reemergence of the uh, teenage angst about this is so fragile this life it was sometimes people come to practice because they've had some terrible thing happen to them and i think i had the opposite i had nothing terrible happen to me but i had intimations of what could happen to me there were certain particular moments i remember uh of course my mother died when i was 23 and that was hugely uh, a big loss to me because i loved her a lot and she was a wonderful person and um, a few years later when oh, maybe five years after that when my children were starting to go to school and my daughter was in the second grade and walking to school one day um on our the street that went by our house, a little bit further down the street, but it could have been near us, a car got out of control, rolled up on the sidewalk, and killed two little girls who were walking to school. Not oh. mine, but uh, and I still think about what did and they were sisters. What did that mother do? I thought to myself, that ten minutes before she had said, "I'll see you later," and she didn't, in the same way, and I became aware of every time you say goodbye to somebody, every time you say see you later, it's an, you know, it's an actuarial guess, maybe you will, and it's a hope, but you might not. And uh, I became quite interiorly uh, both frightened and morbid about it. It was really, uh, in some ways, preoccupying and terrifying. One of the things I couldn't figure out is that um, all of my friends, all of the people that I knew and uh, spent time with, didn't seem to be preoccupied with it. And then on top of everything else, I was thinking to myself, how come I'm so weird? Everybody else seems to think that this life is just normal, regular, just like it is. But it's not regular. It's actually a minefield, and nobody knows about it. Mm. So that's what I was thinking about. And, um, and I went back to school anyway. I went back to school. And became a, uh, I became a social worker. I got a master's degree in social work. Um, that probably was an attempt to figure out to be helpful to people. I was, I, I really felt like that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to help people deal with their lives more effectively. And somewhere in the 1970s, uh, when everybody was suddenly getting interested in meditation. Uh, I tease my husband then and still about the fact that he was such a, um, a spiritual zealot 
Yeah. Those were the days in San Francisco that every weekend there was another workshop that you could go to that was going to be an enlightenment experience one way or another and mm. different kind of practice that people learned to do. I think that TM was the first thing that I was initiated into because everybody was doing that. And then after that, I, uh, I met someone who uh, taught a path of meditation called actualism. What was his name? It's a long time ago. It's disappeared. But um, Seymour was going, my husband was going really seriously looking for a path. And often he'd come home from one of these uh, workshops and he'd say, uh, Syl, this was terrific. You should really do this. This is wonderful. And I'm, I'm reasonably congenial just by nature. So I said, sure, and I'd go do it. And nothing bad happened to me. I never had a terrible experience. Nothing bad happened. And nothing particularly grabbed me. And um, meantime, I had four children growing up. And I had, at this point, I graduated from uh, graduate school. And I had a job, so I was busy. I was not looking for a spiritual path. I certainly didn't feel good. I had walking around with a great deal of angst and alarm about what might happen. And he came home from my um, two-week um, mindfulness retreat. And he said, so this is terrific. You should try this. And I did. And I haven't left. Uh, it was just the right thing. Uh, I like my teachers. I like what they said. Uh, my teachers were all my teachers, all my friends and colleagues, you know, and they said all the things that were so consoling. Uh, they said what I was feeling, what I was inevitably um, challenging, and that no matter what, for everybody, because the nature of the nature of life experiences perpetual change. We are always losing things. We're losing our youth. We're losing our health. We're losing our friends. We're losing the people who we love or they don't love us anymore. Or we are constantly rebalancing ourselves. I think about practice sometimes in terms of keeping the mind balanced enough to be able, when something happens, when anything happens, to be able to say, ah, this is what's happening now. You know, this is a lovely thing to teach because this is one of the best lines I've learned in the last few years, and I didn't make it up. Uh, my friend Gil Fransdahl teaches that. And Gil said, um, he's, he was talking about equanimity. And uh, uh, the ability, which by the way, just as it's important to say, is not tranquility and it's not calm. Uh, it's its own thing. Calm is calm and tranquility is something else. Uh, equanimity is the ability of the mind to rebalance itself and rebalance itself and rebalance itself moment to moment as it is stimulated by various things that come up and startle it. I think one of the, uh, maybe one of the uh, additions that I'll be after my life is using the word startle so much. Uh, because I think very much what happens to us is that the mind is startled by something that happens, uh, big or little, and it either likes it or doesn't like it, and then becomes upset about liking or not liking. Oh, I like it, I have to have it. Now what do I do to get it? Or, oh, I don't like it, I'll have to get rid of it. What do I do to get rid of it? And sometimes I think to myself, we probably spend the whole day thinking, oh, good, fooey, oh, good, fooey, as one thing happens and then something else happens. <laughs> and if you really kept track of it, sometimes I say to people, take two hours of a day and see how many oh, good, fooey, oh, good, fooey we have in that time. the end of the day, no wonder we're tired. We say, oh, God. And what is equanimity if not the ability to say, oh, look, something new has happened. Oh, something new. Phil says the equanimity is the ability to say moment to moment, this is what's happening now. Let's see what happens next. I love that. I just have been teaching it all over the place because the line, let's see what happens next, is so consoling to me, I think to other people too, because it means there's a next. This is not, <laughs> this is not the end. You don't know how it's going to be. We get upset or we get overwhelmed or we get confused because immediately the mind makes up what it thinks is going to happen next. Oh, this is happening, it's going to be terrible. 
this is happening oh it's going to be wonderful we don't know actually this is what's happening let's see what's happening next so um that's a a, a favorite thing of mine anyway don't be going back he came home and he said so this is great and i began to go to lots of retreats not uh uh, not very long retreats. The generation before me was able, was came of age really in a time when the economics and the society was such that people could take a year or two off after school and maybe go to India or Burma or Thailand and study for long periods of time uh, and then go about graduate school or whatever they did after that. And I was 41 when I went to my first uh, mindfulness retreat and I had four children and I had a um, full psychotherapy practice and I had a partner that I lived with that I didn't want to leave so I did um, I did retreats whenever I could 10 days here 10 days there um, a couple of times really a couple of times two times in 30 years a month but not long, long times, more, uh, I, th I sometimes say it uh, when I'm teaching in a public space and some of my adult children are there, I tell this and I say, you know, I went on retreat in such a way that my family wouldn't notice. Uh, I worked in between, I was home in between, so I fitted it in so they didn't notice. And um, inevitably, if I say that, one of my daughters or sons will say to me afterwards, you know, mom, we did notice. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but I was very happy going on retreat. So one of the things I like to teach, especially since the society is different now, and most people, most young people do not have time to take off six months or go on a three-year retreat, that I really need to say to people, you don't need to do that. That dedication to clarity of vision and clear and wise choice is a possibility because if you make your whole life your practice, then it's different from a whole three months of retreat practice. But it's another way of doing it. Uh, that uh, the Eightfold Path itself really has the three parts of, uh, even all the eight parts of it actually are relevant to living in the world and all day long behavior. It's different to be on retreat. And I love to be on retreat. I'm happy to welcome people on retreat uh, if they can manage it. But uh, I really, really want to say to people, this is a this is just waking up. It's a normal thing. It's learning the it's learning to actually notice, paying attention to when the mind is clear and we're choosing wisely, and when the mind is caught up in something, and we're choosing unwisely. Mostly, I say to people these days when they say, when I say. Uh, I think we ought to be practicing all the time. They say, are you aware of your breath all day long? Or are you saying metro resolves all day long? I don't know. I'm going about my business and talking to people and working and doing things. What I am mindful of, I hope, all day long, uh, is the presence or absence of goodwill in my mind. It's mindfulness of, um, not so much mindfulness of the body, although that will be a clue if my heart starts racing or I start to tear up or uh, there's certainly bodily clues about mind states. But I'm really most concerned about the presence or absence of goodwill in my mind. And uh, that, that actually, the presence of goodwill in my mind actually assures that it stays fairly balanced. Um, it's a way of really building equanimity in the mind because it's actually negativity in the mind. Uh, both negativity about, I don't like this, I have to get rid of that, and negativity about, oh, I do want that and I can't get it. They're both, they're both distressed states. And a mind free of distressed states is, uh, is more clear. Mm. I want to, uh, you're saying something that's, uh, that's uh, making me think about I listened to a talk that you gave very recently, um, and because we're talking, you're talking now about goodwill, right? Mm -hmm. And in this talk, you mentioned watching the Republican debate that was recently <laughs> happened, 
and and you and you actually, I think you talked to the uh, the audience about. Yeah, give me all of your initial, you know, a word about your initial reaction to to this uh, display that we saw that many, many, uh, God, I think it was the most watched debate ever or something on television. Uh, and, and of course, there was a lot of different um, uh, words used to describe people's reaction. Uh, many of them were, um, I would say... Uh, a little bit on the, oh my God, can you? <laughs> and and of course, and I myself. Here's and uh, we want to talk about this. We David and I talk about this a lot, and it's about and it gets down to more talking about the us and the them. All right, that we see one of these people who seems so deluded. And so ignorant, related to uh, most especially to to our social fabric and their seeming non-caring whatsoever, and their caring for uh, advancing the cause of the wealthy and the privileged. And so, but then we just become them when we create this polarity. And I I started. So here's my take. I started to watch this thing, and I I just was witnessing how. I was enjoying uh, it in the way that I might enjoy watching Saturday Night Live. Uh, the buffoonery and the absolute... Uh, I mean, there may have been one one man in that whole group that seemed to have some kind of balance, the Governor Kasich. Uh, and, uh, and then, as it got on a little further, I, th- I thought to myself, I must stop watching this because this is just... This is, uh, there's a way in which it's, I feel, completely destructive and destructive for me to be engaging it in the way that, that I was uh, because we're talking about the possibility of, of a horror should one of these people get in and so on. And David, maybe that, so that was my, uh, horror would have been my one word. David, uh, maybe you can react to, to that and then we'll let Sylvia... Take it well, from there. I mean, you know, Ramdas for many years had a picture of George W. Bush on his puja, along with Maharaji and Ramakrishna <laughs> and so forth. And when asked about these kind of people, sorry to put them in a group, but it's not that difficult because they're ideologically cemented. Um, he said, "Well, you know, um, lousy incarnation, child of God, lousy incarnation." And, and one of the things that you say frequently, and and in your wonderful great. Greet this moment as a friend, which I recommend to everybody. Get it on Amazon, either Kindle or book. It's a fantastic, fairly short book, but sets you straight. You say you don't have to like everybody. Uh, you don't have to like every moment. You just have goodwill. But you don't have to invite them into their house and have tea with them or go and see them <laughs> or say false things about them. Yeah. And, you know, you're, Sharon does this too, that, you, you know, when you get angry, you can return... If you've practiced, I mean, this morning I hurt my finger, my thumb, five minutes before we started this podcast, <laughs> and a, 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 a sort of a, a Turkish carpet seller's stream of consciousness set of curses came out of my mouth, although there's no one here except my cat, uh, that was just execrable. But because I've somehow absorbed this information from you and other teachers, it didn't last that long. I went and got the ice, I took an ibuprofen, and I went back to feeling pretty damn good that we were going to be interviewing a uh, a great writer and teacher, and forgot about my thumb. Twenty years ago, I would have, you know, done a podcast about this pain. <laughs> so, there, I think Raghu and I, you know, have talked a lot in our time doing this, and before that for 40 years, about how do you deal with these negative components of communication and life that come in our way, both from the mass media and from friends, enemies, people who insult you, and you've got it down. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm just one other point that I'd like you to relate to, and then I'll get off this, is you help people in terms of, there's a lot of sort of heart-mind polarity goes on. Talk about us and them. The heart is where you are. The mind is killing you. You simply do not write that. You say the mind is also a terrific arranger and a cooperative, a cooperative mechanism that will help you if you know how to handle it. 
And I'd like you to talk about that cooperation of the mind as well as those million thoughts that we think are bad or negative. <laughs> How does the mind cooperate in helping us deal with those million thoughts, if, particularly if they're negative and hateful? Oh, I, I love everything that both of you said. So let me see if I can remember all the things I'm going to say something about. First of all, uh, I actually, uh, I actually love the fact that I'm uh, about that the thoughts are not thoughts. Thinking is not a bad thing. Sometimes you get that impression that you, that a thought arises and you say thinking, 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 as if like batting it out of the ballpark, like a thought would be a noxious thing. And actually, the ability to cognize, recognize, cognize, and think about things, and say to myself, um, and say to myself uh, something that's insightful, like, um, "Oh, uh, sweetheart, <laughs> you just you just got really upset. Relax, take a breath, calm down." I rely on my mind and my memory and my um, uh, my awareness not only. That, that that happened, which requires a certain level of abstract thinking, but the awareness that I can, I, I, I am not, what's this? I am not um, obligated to stay there. I could do something about it. That awareness that it's the third noble truth, that peace is possible. You could do something about it. So I love your story about, I'm so sorry that you fell at me and hurt your finger. Uh, but that the the invectives that arose, <laughs> I want to say I've really become quite comfortable with the fact. Uh, I think Ramdas would corroborate this as well. That invective arises that somehow if I had any thought that when I got finished with or when I got advanced into this kind of practice, that never again would I impromptu say terrible words or never again. <laughs> <laughs> dog I, I just this very morning i have a very old dog he's 15 years old i love him he's a little old guy and he has apparently forgotten that he's supposed to pee outside and oh. he just you know he forgets and i have hardwood floors and i and i i got annoyed with him and first of all it's ridiculous to be annoyed and and, and to say to him what are you doing have a whole conversation he doesn't get it he's doing it because he's an old man i'm certainly not going to do anything about the dog i take scrupulously good care of him but invective arises <laughs> <laughs> and i watched myself and i thought for a minute you know maybe i maybe i'm supposed to be spacious about it forget it i have beautiful hardwood floors and when I see that he's peed again on them, invective arises, and it passes in a second. You go get the cleaning materials, and you clean the floor. We do not come out like um, some sort of steamroller has gone over our emotional system. I thought that a little bit in the beginning. I worried about that in the beginning, that I'd come out uh, emotionally flat. But that doesn't happen at all. I'm quite sure I have a wider... Um, palette of emotional response than I did when I started because it doesn't frighten me as much and it doesn't stay as long. It passes as much as it comes up. It's kind of funny actually. So I want to go also back to um, the debate, the, the talk about the debate because there were two other things that I learned from. You must have listened to that this morning. It was just yesterday that I talked that. I yes. <laughs> no. When was it? No, last night. I caught it right away. So, wow. You know, I love that. You know, I teach on Wednesday mornings. And by, uh, you know, by mid-afternoon, it's up on Dharma Seed. Yeah. And and people listen all over the world. And I love that uh, that they, that in the farthest reaches of the world, all anybody needs is a piece of electronics and they can be listening to Dharma for free from Dharma Seed. I think that's fabulous. Anyway, uh, as you pointed out, uh, uh, people said uh, numbers of states that arose, and uh, most of them, well, whether they were approbation or whatever, they were excited states, they're excited mind states. And I noticed in myself when I was watching that program that you get tenser and tenser. It's like, um, if you do something, it's like playing um, playing a, uh, what do you call those games? It's a pachinko machine in, in Japan. Pinball machine. When you a pinball machine, then you have to do it again and again because you feel this time you're going to get it. And there's something addicting to, uh, to a high state 
education. So, well, when I finished, you think, okay, you know, you turn on. Well, no. Now I should turn on to the, tel- the channel that I never listened to to see what they thought of it and what they talked about. And it was very interesting to me uh, to see what uh, the channel that I never listened to, because they have a different political opinion, thought of it. Uh, because actually they had several aspects and several issues. And actually there were issues that I thought about and I thought, I never thought about that issue quite that way before. And I realized that it's certainly not the end of the story and I didn't become converted to anything at that point. But I became aware of what things in my mind have changed from being opinions to being truths. And they're actually just opinions. And there are other people who have other opinions, Mm. some of which might not be so unreasonable. Mm. And I thought to myself, that's very interesting. You insulate, uh, one insulates oneself, I think, and builds uh, builds ideas into rigidities, and then it's really hard to see other people's point of view and see through. Uh, I was thinking about last night. I was thinking about it. And I was thinking, if I have those thoughts, the truths, and other people have them, their opinions and bad ones, you know, and I can't see through mine. Mm. I also really noticed that it's seriously it has the potential to be addicting because it's stimulating. Also, there's a little element of schadenfreude, of, of delight that the other people, the enemy, is messing themselves up by behaving badly. <laughs> and I think there's a little element of the pleasure of uh, your, so to speak, enemies hurting themselves. But that's a terrible thing I've just now said in public airspace that I think also arises, and it's an ignoble feeling. I don't feel good about it when I have that, you know, that that actually when I have an ignoble thought like that, that something bad might befall an enemy, like a public figure that I think is probably threatening world peace or something. Uh, I change over to what you said, David. I think to myself, this person has a family. This person wants to go home tonight. This person wants to get up in the morning. They want their children to be well. They really want their air to be clean and their water to be clean, just as I do. And I, I really do something to make them back into human beings. Because as long as I have irritation in my mind and negativity in my mind, I am not free. And I am not, I am not at ease. I, I, I really want to, want to say about that two-line rubric, may I meet this moment fully, may I meet it as a friend, that I've been teaching these last couple of years. I began to realize that uh, loving kindness practice was a specific, a specific subset of mindfulness practice. They really are permutations of the same, uh, the same understanding that it's possible for uh, the mind to develop such equanimity that the wisdom, the insight, and wisdom arises that everyone is doing the best they can, and that suffering is ubiquitous and that everyone, just like me, wants to be well, uh, which is the best possible mind state to have, because then you have no enemies in that mind state, and your mind is so easy. Not even yourself, because you're not thinking ignoble thoughts. So I began to say that uh, uh, loving-kindness meditation is the same as mindfulness, but mindfulness is being, at- being attentive in any moment to what's happening out here, really what's happening in here in response to what's happening. It's not really important whether I've just had a thought or smelled a smell or heard a sound. It's much more important what has, what has, how has my mind welcomed that experience and how has my mind not kept itself from startling over that experience. That's what mindfulness is. And it also has a one more part after it how has my mind kept itself from startling in order for it to remain clear, in order for me to know what is the best thing to do right now? What should I do? I think that there's a very active component to mindfulness because since it's predicated on ending suffering, that when the mind is clear, the choice of the next thing to do to not create suffering and in fact alleviate suffering becomes clear. 
Um, I'm trying to think of an easy way to. <laughs> I I was somewhere at some family gathering, and I I I said something to one of my adult daughters about. I said, you know, cousin so and so just said this and this to me. You think I should be mad at her? <laughs> This is such a ridiculous conversation. I'm embarrassed to say. I'm not really embarrassed. I wouldn't be saying if I were really embarrassed. And she said to me, uh, well, you could if you wanted to, Mom, but you don't have to. And I thought to myself, uh, she's exactly right. You, you have a choice all the time. Someone says something, it hurts your feelings. You have a choice about whether or not you're going to be mad at them. You say, I could get mad at them right now because not only did they do this right now, but they did it two weeks ago. And they did it last Christmas Day in the afternoon. Or... You could say, whoops, that was really an unfortunate thing for them to say. My feelings are hurt in this moment. But I remember that my cousin really does love me. And why mess up my mind with making a feud in it now? It's always a choice, moment to moment. It's always a choice. We are free to make that choice. That is the big insight of the Buddha. And that's what the whole training is about. May I meet this moment fully? Means may I not clench up? May I be able to say, oh, look at that. Cousin so and so said that unpleasant thing to me. Oh, look at that. The bride is beautiful. That's, you know, just whatever. The second part of that rubric, may I meet it as a friend? When people do that, what they say to me, and if I say, let's just sit, and as you breathe in, say to yourself, may I meet this moment fully? May I, and as you breathe out, say to yourself, may I meet it as a friend. Uh, we do that for a while. People say, you know, I feel a little different. Um, on the first one, I wake up as if I'm really, really attentive, uh, really, really feeling my experience outside and inside. And on the second one, my body and my mind relaxes a little bit. May I meet it as a friend. May I meet it sweetly. I actually think I could give mindfulness instructions that way that we meet the moment as a friend and with curiosity, which is a little bit sweetly, and with um, uh, ardency to take it and understand it and do something, um, what's it called? Do something wholesome with it. <laughs> that was a long exposition. That's what we want. Okay. <laughs> no, it is. Because, you know, I mean, I've got hundreds of notes, and, you know, we're slightly running out of time. And it's just, there's so many things that I was immediately struck by in your, in your, in your book, greeting them, you know, the moment. I, I, the one thing that, one of the things that really knocked me out was the simple expression, people are heroic. And the and the the idea that everybody gets up every morning, puts on their pants or their skirts or whatever they put on, and mm -hmm. goes out and does their job or looks after their children or their dogs or their garden or whatever, and does it every day and doesn't collapse, and doesn't freak out in fear and trembling, that is the most positive thing that one could possibly say about the human race, that we are actually heroic. Now, does that mean that a the storm Fuhrer in 1941 who went out to kill people was heroic. No, clearly not. But for the vast majority of people, that goodwill you speak about is there, or the social fabric would break down totally, not just in Iceland, Ferguson, or in, 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 in Ukraine, but everywhere. So the social fabric, the social contract that we have with each other does not break down in 99.9% .9 recurring of our normal life. It doesn't matter if it's America or Zimbabwe. It does not. And the fact that you made that simple statement, people are heroic, moved me when I read it. Uh, and I just wanted to everyone to, you know, to chew upon that, those three words. Really. I'm, so I'm, I'm very glad that you brought that up because I still think so. You know that the more that... Uh, Earlier on when I said one of the things that propelled me really into practicing more and more is my sense as soon as I heard my teachers that there was an end to the suffering that, that the angst in the mind about whatever you do, however much you take your vitamins and brush your teeth, this is a very, um, this life is precarious. And on the one hand, I had friends who died last 
sweet who was 98 and her body held out a long time that's very rare and we don't know from one moment to the next we don't know what's going to be flawless we don't know what physically will be flawless mentally will be flawless and yet we get up every morning and we go out and we try to make a go of it again and we want more of it that's something of that spirit in people that i find amazing people when we are when we when we mourn to somebody everyone terrible things happen to people their children die their partners die every parents die we get dreadful diagnoses of what's what happened to us and yet in the morning we want to meet another friend and say something else to somebody else and read the newspaper and hear what's happening that really we're um um most of us, if we're reasonably well uh, cared for as children, don't want to throw in the towel. We want to keep on living. And I think that's amazing. In spite of all of the things that could happen, we keep on doing it anyway and wanting more of it. Uh, I find that uh, the kind of thing that I think about in airports. I like to be in airports. Somebody told me, uh, I mentioned recently to a class that now that I'm older, I, I'm really uh, not traveling quite so much. You know, I, don't, it, I used to feel more excited about traveling here and there to teach. I just, you get old, it's hard to travel around quite so much. And they said, well, but if you don't go any place anymore, you won't have anything to teach them because all your stories are in airports and in airplanes. But they're not all the stories, but a lot of them. <laughs> But the thing is that in airports, if you look around, an airport is a great place to practice because you don't know anybody there and you're sitting. And of course, you could read a magazine or occupy yourself in some way. Or you could just be looking at the people that you don't know. And you look around and you think to yourself, I think to myself, everybody's got a story here. Everybody, if you ask them what's going on, sometimes people talk to the people in the seat next to them, which I often do. But even without that, you look around and say, everybody's got a story. I have no idea who's going to their granddaughter's wedding and who's going to their father's funeral and who's going to a job interview that may change their whole life or who's going to visit their publisher or who's going to, uh, who's going where, for what. But they're all going somewhere and everybody's got a reason to go there. And what the, and, and everybody has packed, gotten there, organized themselves. You could say they're taking the chance of getting in an airplane, which is really pretty safe anyway, but it's uncomfortable in the airplane. They want to get there. And it's a little hard, however safe and all that. It's a little hard to put yourself in an airplane and sit there. And and actually what comes up, if you think about it, is your own natural compassion. (laughs) And the thought, well, I think words are like it in my heart, but the, the feeling, may everybody get everywhere safely, it's a naturally arising feeling. And that kind of experience makes me feel so hopeful for human beings. We want well for other people. If I'm sitting and I'm relaxed and I'm not going to take you know, a final exam or something or to contest something or other, and I'm not afraid of my journey, if my own mind is relaxed, what comes up naturally is you look at people, you look at people who are traveling who are uh, limited in their mobility or something and then it's you know naturally arising that you feel for them you look at regular people not limited and you feel for them because everybody is under some kind of pressure there and then if you extrapolate out of the airport through the whole life everybody's going around uh really trying to get through the day i i uh, when i think that what I find is is ill is any kinds of residue of ill will, or not even ill will, but uh, you don't have ill will on your family. But sometimes somebody in your family says something, or something doesn't go right, or this or that didn't happen. The email that you were expecting didn't come, and you were irritated about it. Or <laughs> you tripped on the carpet. <laughs> if there's any amount of irritation in the mind, it goes out. In the moment that compassion fills the mind, because it just does, that compassion is a kind of melter of all irritation. So that cultivating, the, so that sitting in an airport and cultivating compassion or enthusiasm, you see, uh, you know what I love to see in airports? A whole team, 
You can tell they're a team because they got sports outfits and they've got athletic bags with equipment and and young people and they're all flying somewhere to compete somewhere. And you feel excited for them. You have empathic joy for them because they're healthy and they're in a good shape. An airport is a great place. I mm-hmm. Sylvia, why don't you lead us in a little, we talked uh, before the show about a, a particular meditation you thought would be nice to share. I really love to teach metta, loving kindness meditation. Um, I love to tell people that uh, the word metta that comes from Pali language means friendliness. And uh, because it's been translated into English as loving kindness, which is an odd word, but friendliness is what it is. Uh, May I meet it as a friend. It's friendliness practice. May I meet everybody that I meet as a friend. May I meet my own thoughts as friends. May I meet my own body as a friend. Um, may I meet my life as a friend. Um, if I met everything as a friend, then there wouldn't be negativity in my mind and I'd have nothing to be afraid of and I'd be free. This is the meditation. Uh, which if people uh, are doing while they're driving or walking around, they certainly have their eyes open. If you're sitting down, you can close your eyes and visualize inside, but it's not necessary to close your eyes to visualize. And I ask people, first of all, to um, think of uh, how much for themselves they'd most enjoy feeling safe and happy and strong And peaceful. I chose those four words because they mostly mirror what the uh, Pali scripture words are for formal practice. And I say to people, say to yourself out loud if you're driving your car or in amongst or by yourself or in your mind quietly. May I feel safe? When I say that to myself, I like to really say it ardently. May I feel safe? Often when I say that, I find that my whole body relaxes. It's as if I remind my mind, give me the feeling of safe, please. Pass it along. I say to myself ardently, may I feel happy? And sometimes when I say that, I just automatically smile. And if I wait a micro moment, happiness arises in my mind. When I say to myself, may I feel strong? I find that whether I'm sitting or walking or um, driving my car, even when I say, may I feel strong, my body sits up a little straighter as if it became strong in that moment. May I live peacefully? You know, peacefully is not is a is a is a is a thought more than it is a body feeling. So I just say that in the best way that I can, and I don't expect my body to make a feeling for me. It's a placeholder for the three other feelings. Then think of somebody who's. Uh, not a teacher to you, but a good friend, maybe a beloved partner or parent or child. Sometimes people say, I have so many, how should I choose? Just one at a time, you could do it all day long. And think of them, imagine them. Imagine you're saying to them ardently, may you feel safe. What I try to do when I wish for other people is feel the safe in myself. I can't feel it in them, but I could feel it in myself. May you feel happy.
May you feel strong. May you live peacefully. You could do that over and over and call in all different members of your family and your best, best friends. Traditionally, at some point, one brings to mind someone one hardly knows but would recognize, a familiar stranger. I think about my dentist, actually. I don't think about my dentist much except when I'm there. But I realize that when I think about him and bring him to mind, and I think, may you feel safe? May you live peacefully. But I realize that he's very dear to me. I don't think about him a lot, but I've known him a while. He does very important things about keeping my teeth good. I think Metta endears people to us. And I think of all the people past the familiar strangers in the world who are unfamiliar strangers, which is almost 8 billion other people. Such a huge imagination to imagine all of those globe people getting up and going to sleep and going to work and getting born and getting old and falling in love and out of love and making babies and working. May everyone everywhere go safe. May everyone feel happy. May everyone on this whole planet be able to share the resources of this planet so everyone is strong. spend a lot of time doing that practice. People mm. sometimes people sometimes talk about uh, going on a long loving kindness retreat. So it just occurs to me now that the whole life could be one long loving kindness yeah. retreat. <laughs> yes, yes, it should be for all of us. Thank you so much, Sylvia. We really it's appreciate you. Absolutely. And uh, Sylvia, how can people get in touch with you? Uh, maybe a website address? Actually, my website is not a responsive website, but if they write to me at, uh, 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 you know, they could write to office at spiritrock.org and uh, put in the tagline forward to Sylvia Borstein. Okay. Everybody, of course, uh, Spirit Rock is a, a wonderful, very well-known center Vipassana Center in Marin and uh, Northern California. And, uh, of course, as you know, because of Jack Cornfield, um, he is the uh, one of the people who started Spirit Rock. And uh, it's uh, uh, if you live in that area, you must go there because it's a, a absolutely wonderful retreat center. So, um, so what's the address again, Sylvia? Uh, uh, SpiritRockMeditationCenter.org SpiritRock.org will get it there and you can look online uh, look up SpiritRock online yeah. uh, and uh, look at all the things that go on there and uh, and also uh, for those of you Sylvia has many books just go up on Amazon Sylvia Borstein and uh, uh, there's a wealth there to take advantage of David uh, what was the name of the book, David, that you uh, happened to be quoting from? Uh, the book is called, I think, Make Friends with the Present Moment. Yeah. Is that right, Sylvia? It's a good title. Yeah, that's a great Pre title. Moment. Yeah, title. Yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, I think we'll make that the title of this uh, podcast. Yeah, I think you should. Read this moment as a friend. And also, uh, Sylvia's pieces in Shambhala Sun are always extremely ameliorative for me. And the new one, which is, about, I think it's titled something like, I'm never, as, I'm not. I'm never as happy as my children are are unhappy or something. Like that. It's a slight. <laughs> no, correction. I have it right here, and Please, it is. You are never happier than your least happy child, 
That's uh, that's from the latest. So again, <laughs> thank you, thank you. Because it doesn't actually say that. It 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 sort of has variables on that that are very very wonderful. So check Shambhala Sanas on your account because Sylvia writes full length articles and these little pieces which are helpful. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, Sylvia and. And uh, everyone, go to mindpodnetwork.com and just take advantage of the wealth of teachers that are there and the podcasts and the wisdom articles and everything else we have going. And David and I will see you next time on Mind Rolling. <laughs>